All right, uh, so let's do this. I don't really have a lot today, but I do uh, have something completely different than the last two weeks. I forgot to put the PowerPoint up, and I'm sorry about that. I know this has led to some really good conversation, uh, but I do want to make four what I'm going to call caveats. I use that word all the time, although I really don't know what it means. I think it just means sort of like exceptions or like specific things you want to focus on. They have nothing to do with the sermon today. They're just things that have come up that didn't fit anywhere else. And so I want to just sort of say them and then if you have more questions about them, certainly ask one of uh, us. Uh, we have a lot, a lot of folks gone today because the teen camp stuff, Leslie and Kurt, that's where they're at, uh, at one of the other two churches, three churches now, doing teen camp stuff. Uh, so the first one, and I'm just going to do this in no particular order. Well, I guess it is a particular order. It's the order of people who uh, have talked to me about things that maybe I missed or they didn't, weren't able to speak up on. I just want to talk really quickly about this issue that alcohol doesn't excuse any kind of sexual assault or sexual harassment. You know, on the one hand, um, I think it's very important for, for women to understand that uh, when you mix the two, sex and alcohol, a lot of times bad things are going to happen. But that in no way excuses the behavior and allows perpetrators, whether they be men or women, to use alcohol as an excuse for the things that they've done. And I think that's really, really important, okay? And I just want to make sure that you understand that and mention it, and hopefully nowhere throughout this, this talk uh, we made excuses for bad behavior just because someone has an alcohol issue. Uh, more likely than not, it's not even because they have an alcohol issue, it's because they made the choice to binge drink and therefore put themselves in a situation where they uh, had less inhibitions and more likelihood of harming someone else, which we are going to talk about today. And so I think that's just a really important point that I want to make um, I had uh, uh, heard a story this week, and it actually might be someone in this uh, group, so I don't know. I don't know the name of the person, but I'm, if I'm sharing your stuff that you thought was private, here we go. Um, it's not a bad story, too bad, but we had a gal who was hanging out with uh, you know, some of her coworkers, and you know, some guy just started kind of buying her drinks, all right? And she just thought this was kind of funny and kind of cool, and her, fr- her coworkers were sort of egging her on. And uh, anyway, um, sort of after a couple drinks, the guy started to get pretty handsy. And she was just like sort of shocked by this and amazed uh, that this, uh, this had happened. And, uh, you know, not to say that she's completely ignorant uh, or anything, but I think there is an ignorance in there. If a guy is buying you drinks, he's probably got an ulterior motive for you, all right? And, uh, and I see that a lot uh, in, uh, well, I say I see it a lot. I don't see it a lot. If I saw it, it would not happen around me. Uh, but I hear about it a lot. Uh, with, uh, with some compromising situations. And so just be careful about that stuff. And of course, the sad thing about it was coworkers were egging her on. Uh, hopefully, we would never have a story like that with, uh, with people from our community uh, engaging in or encouraging uh, that to happen. The second thing is uh, someone mentioned that it's important to note that for many alcoholics, and I think this is a really, really small subset of people, okay? And hopefully, you understand the difference between alcohol use disorder and alcoholism. But for a lot of people who are alcoholics, when they start drinking, they cannot stop. They simply cannot stop. And I think that's one of those things that you have to be very careful about drinking around others who have had alcohol issues in the past, is if you are encouraging someone to take that first drink, that one drink, then for some people that is just not a possibility. Whether they drink around you or go back home and drink, you've just sort of opened Pandora's box and that's going to play out. And I think that's really, really important that we recognize and understand that while that's a subset, a very small group of people around us, that if we're encouraging that, uh, that can be really problematic. Uh, I mentioned something last week uh, that uh, a couple people talked to me about, and uh, this is just sort of a language issue, but I mentioned that a shot of my favorite scotch is about $24. Now, I want to make a clarifying statement about that. I don't ever take shots. I haven't taken shots or done shots since I was 14 or 15, okay? A shot is just generally the appropriate word for a one or one and a half ounce glass of liquor. If I said glass, people are thinking I'm drinking eight ounce glasses of uh, of liquor. So I mentioned shot because that's how they are priced, but I don't think it's ever appropriate in my mind for Christians to take shots. Shots uh, are for one thing, and that's to get you drunk as quickly as possible. And so when you see people taking shots, that's not enjoyment of alcohol like we talked about last week. That is simply getting drunk 
or at least adding to the buzzed feeling as quickly as I can. There is no way you can possibly taste one and a half ounces. Again, that is the same as taking a whole glass of wine and just boom, or a beer and downing it. For some reason, people don't usually do that in front of other people. Give me a glass of wine, I'm gonna down it in front of you. You'd be thinking, what is wrong with this person? Or beer in it, you know? But for some reason, when it comes to liquor, people take shots, but it is the exact same as downing an entire glass uh, of beer or uh, a glass of wine. And it just doesn't make any sense. There's no possible way you can explain away uh, that that is not for the purpose of getting buzzed or getting drunk, and you've left the world of enjoyment of alcohol and into a much more darker world of using alcohol uh, to alter your state of mind. The last issue, the fourth issue here, is I certainly would be remiss if I didn't mention that there can be some real co-issues with alcohol. Um, but what I mean by co-issues are if you're taking medication for depression or anxiety, your limit may be considerably less than that two for women or four for a man. And so you've got to be able to think through that. There are going to be some other things that may alter your ability uh, to handle alcohol, and depression and anxiety medication are two big ones. In fact, most depression medication says very clearly, do not take with alcohol. Do people pay attention to that? No. Uh, have I heard in some extreme cases of people literally getting off of their depression or anxiety medication so they can drink? Yes. I can't possibly tell you how dumb that is unless the medication wasn't helping you in the first place. Um, so I just want to mention that, that there are a variety of kind of co-issues that go along with drinking, uh, and that one in particular, the whole taking medication or, uh, or things like that. Not to mention the fact on an empty stomach, uh, some alcoholics report, well, a lot of alcoholics report skipping lots of meals, and there are a whole lot of warning signs that sort of go along uh, with that. All right? Cool? Good? Yeah? Any questions about those four? Because they're completely unrelated to what I'm going to talk about here in a moment. Not completely. They're somewhat unrelated. Yeah, Justin. Well, drinking doesn't cause you to have an empty stomach. It actually feels, it makes you feel, uh, feel like you're filled up. When you have an empty stomach and your body's not processing other things at the same time, alcohol just has a more potent effect. That's why a lot of alcoholics will start in the morning or they'll, they'll skip meals purposely so that drinking will uh, affect them more than if it didn't. Okay? Okay. Yeah, hi. Good to see you. Yeah, so we did cover that in the first week. So just go back and listen to it and, and on the Facebook. Uh, the short of it is that alcohol use disorder is a step to alcoholism. And that a lot more people have alcohol use disorder, which is defined by the DSM uh, with about 25 questions. Whereas an alcoholic is the traditional, can't control it, giving their life over to it, um, and, uh, and is sort of the end game of all of that. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to go back through scripture and you want to type in, you know, into a search engine, drunkard or drunkenness, you're going to find pretty much the passages on drinking. So I'm not going to go through each one of those because more or less they say all the same thing. It's basically that a drunkard is sort of seen as someone in scripture who has wasted their life away, who has, you know, uh, engaged in a lot of other sinful acts at the same time. This is a pattern of, of lifestyle. This is something that's really in no way excusable in any point in the scripture it's involved or added, rather, in a number of sin lists, including murder and uh, being sexually immoral and greedy and uh, all kinds of other things. So you can go and do that research on your own. That's pretty clear. I think most of us as Christians hopefully understand that. If we don't agree with it, might be another issue in our postmodern context. But the scripture is very, very clear on condemning any form of drunkenness. And again, I think you have to, and we talked about this last time with definitions, uh, understand that drunk, okay, drunk is really not in a subjective term. It is objectively defined by a number of health organizations. So whether you think you're drunk or not, believe it or not, has no bearing on whether you actually are or not. And so having objective standards and understanding what that actually entails uh, can really help you bypass that, what we talked about last time with bartenders defining alcohol or alcoholism as pretty much nobody has it. Uh, because that in their wide and broad definition of alcoholism, just nobody fits into it. Because as long as you can handle it, whatever the heck that means, or drinking responsibly, which we 
you know, targeted that idea last time, um, then you can handle it. So you can look at those scriptures on your own. I want to focus on two, really three, I guess, in particular. The four, first one is 1 Corinthians 5, 19. I used to think that 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 were sort of advanced uh, Christian teachings. And the more I've studied them and the more I've paid attention to them, I realize they're really not advanced Christian teachings. They're just more basics of being a disciple of Christ. I'm not a huge fan of this distinction between discipleship and Christianity because the discipling movement redefined a lot of that as moral legalism. But I do understand that in the scripture, like many of you have studied and focused on Jesus, there's a really distinct difference between being a disciple of Christ and simply being a Christian. Christian meaning pretty much anything that our society or our current time period defines because the scripture doesn't do it for us. Whereas a disciple has over you know, 250 references that make it really clear what it looks like to be a disciple. And so unfortunately, as Christianity has become very popularized, what we would call basics of Christianity aren't really basics at all. They're barely, if at all, Christianity. It's the basics of being a disciple of Christ that's the starting point. And so much of what Paul is doing in his letters are convincing people not to be cultural Christians, but to be actual disciples of Christ. And so as I've read through these passages, I realize while they may seem very advanced for a Christian, they're pretty basic passages for how we ought to interact with each other as disciples of Christ. So see if you agree with me on that, and, uh, and we'll go through these, and I'll give you a few thoughts, and then we'll be done. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 uh, the Corinthian church had a really different issue than, let's say, the church in uh, Galatia, okay? Uh, the church in Galatia was, had a huge problem with legalism. We talked about that you know, probably about uh, a month ago. And the Corinthian church was much more uh, uh, problematic in their attitude towards the world, an attitude towards the way that uh, you know, freedoms abounded around them in society, all right? So they emphasized their freedom, to the detriment of having any sort of moral law, uh, whereas you know, the church in Galatia was the exact opposite. This is basically the exact same extreme that all of us live by if we're not careful. We either go towards, here are the rules we ought to live by, and we sort of just stand by them, or here are the freedoms that you should tell me, you don't ever tell me that I uh, don't have, and I'm going to live by those freedoms. We talked about a month ago that worldliness is both ends of that spectrum. Too far into, uh, you know, um, demanding your freedoms, and too far into a legalism that somehow keeps you from being spiritual, but just gives you a rule book to follow, okay? So the church in Corinth is apparently very excited that they've allowed and had grace for a guy who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, all right? It amounts to that. And in the letter, they're just talking about how, you know, they've really understood grace and practiced this grace, and Paul, you can only imagine when he reads that, is just like, how, how, how I, I would get a letter like that and just immediately be like, all right, that church is going to hell, every single one of them. <laughs> it's not even worth me writing a letter back because they are all hellbound. It's just, it's gone too far. And yet Paul, in one of his more scathing letters, for sure, really deals with the problem of Corinth in a very loving uh, but firm way and tries to get them to go beyond just the behavior and into an understanding of the character of what it's like to live as a Christian. And so he gives what seems like are pretty radical statements, statements that I think apply still to the church today, particularly in how we view sin outside and are ignorant of it inside the community. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, we'll bypass the incest part, uh, but I want to kind of sum up with this last part. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to just leave the world. That's an extreme statement. He's saying that's not possible. Even if you wanted to, it wouldn't be possible. And in fact, too many fundamentalists fail to understand this passage uh, as an impossibility, and rather as they see it as a suggestion that Paul's like, oh, okay, yeah, leave the world, good idea. I'm going to go live in the mountains, and I'm going to go live in a desert community, or I'm going to go live in a cult compound, as if sin doesn't follow us wherever we go. It's an impossibility. Paul's saying you just simply can't. There's no possibility. You're going to be around people who aren't living in a way that reflects God's character. It's just not going to happen, so why are you worried about it, you know? 
You're crazy to think. You're fooling yourself to think that it is possible. So he says, uh, not going to happen. But now I am writing to clarify, really, to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a part of the community of God, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. So this is a challenging passage, right? Not to mention um, the fact that it's a little bit vague. Like, what exactly does that mean? Um, So I don't want to go too far into this, but I do want to say that Paul seems to, to be recommending that you not associate with anybody who engages in these behaviors. Now, again, I think that would be an impossibility. Practically speaking, if we really believe that's what Paul is saying then this age-old tradition of Christians having to be perfect in order to be in the church would stand. And none of us would be able to really be here today. Well, maybe a few of us. But there are other lists that would apply to some of us. This sin list, maybe not. What he obviously means here, and what he goes on to say in these next few chapters, are people who live by these things, who are unaware either uh, of what they're doing and need to be made aware of it, or who are aware and simply refuse to stop. They have become defined by a greedy, pers- by a greedy, greedy behavior, become com- defined by a sexual morality or by, drunkard- or by drunkenness. And this is really difficult for us because as Christians, and particularly people who mentor, it's hard to know when someone has really pretty much given up on their own sin. But we know that behavior ultimately speaks louder than words, And so at some level, we have to decide in the behavior what the truth of that person's motivations and intents are. But Paul says when someone is intent on not fixing these things, not allowing the Spirit to move in them, you ought to disassociate or disfellowship. Now, disfellowship and church discipline are not very fun things. And I would admit that there are a lot of really bad bad examples of this going on. The village had a big one two years ago that I would not have gotten behind, and they kind of reversed course, which I think was good. Uh, Watermark Church, about four or five years ago, had a good example of church discipline. I thought that was really interesting. Um, In both cases, it had to do with adultery and sexual morality. I can, uh, you know, count on my hand probably three or four times we've officially disfellowshipped someone in the history of our church. Most disassociation comes at the individual level, and most people are pretty fine with that. I disassociate myself from someone who is simply not, not living in accordance with their Christian faith and is fine with that, might even uh, be okay uh, expressing that, and somehow is still, hold on, uh, still around. Most of us, that simply happens as we've had the 10th conversation, hey, you got to get rid of this stuff. This isn't Okay. And many people don't want to just sit with you one-on-one and have the 10th conversation, and they'll usually disassociate themselves, honestly. Um, But this is a tricky command. I don't want to go too much into this because this has to do with a whole lot of church um, uh, sort of leadership and and structure, and and by do, I'll answer a few questions about it. Go ahead, Claudia. Well, at the informal level, it's just stop uh, spending time with that person in public. That's what he's saying, is you just stop spending time with them in any kind of public way. Uh, to associate yourself with a believer who is um, claiming to be a Christian, okay, but continues to live uh, as if they're not, um, in these specific ways, you just, you know, you've got to disassociate yourself. Um, and I think that's very tricky in a society like ours, right? A Christian society. Um, again, I, th- this is one of those things you have to know someone pretty well to know what's going on, and this isn't a matter of... Uh, you know, you, you kind of have to have a level of understanding about them that goes to the heart in, the, in a relationship. Because it's very easy to look at someone who messes up over and over again, but is, in, you know, trying, and it's a slow progress, is very different. And I think that would require a whole other kind of conversation, which that part is a little bit more advanced. I think we definitely have to err 
on the side of not like rushing to disfellowship or disassociate ourselves with people, right? <laughs> That's the whole idea of grace and mercy, you know? It's not we're looking for an opportunity to disassociate. This is sort of like a last-ditch effort. In fact, uh, Paul calls it handing them over to Satan for their own good. Uh, not something that, you know, you're like, oh, Lord, that's terrible. But I think at the, the, the end of the day, what it's simply saying is that, listen, you are not living according to God's standards and seem to have no, uh, you know, desire to. What you are doing, though, is living in accordance with the powers of evil in this world. You are directly going against God and seem to be okay flaunting that in your life. And as such, the command for us is to hand you over to Satan, which means not like, we're like exchanging your soul for something reward and, and, you know, it's not giving up on you. I mean, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is simply in this passage saying for their own good, to let them know, all right, you want the full benefits of this? Go for it. Because often what we do as Christians is in our grace, and it's certainly what the church was doing here, we allow all kinds of sin to go unchecked and unchallenged and allow people to be a part of the body of Christ and, and, and access its benefits of community and an encouragement without really having made a, a firm commitment, even though they said that they have. And that's a real problem. It's completely okay for people who are approaching God and making their way into faith to be around us and all of us to be at various levels. But when someone has said to have already attained or uh, you know, made a faith decision in God and yet lives in opposition to those very things that the Spirit is doing with inside of them, the Spirit has long given up usually before we do. And that's kind of scary to think that we would somehow keep people around when the Spirit of God has uh, ceased to work in their lives. Now again, I know this is a scary thing and this is church discipline and I I really don't want to go too much into it because it doesn't necessarily fit with what I'm talking about. The sermon is not about learning how to disassociate people who are drunkards, okay? Um, that would be a very, very strange thing. Uh, this is a one-on-one kind of thing, and I think this is a personal thing for most people. It never has to get to the level of disfellowship uh, for most. But disfellowship at the corporate level is uninviting people to your church. Again, I've seen it happen three or four times uh, in my life, and, uh, and each time it was very much in our church, uh, I think, warranted. So I want to move over to Romans 14, which says something almost opposite, and people get confused between these. Uh, passages. They're both Paul, and so it's important to understand uh, what exactly is going on here. Now, I won't give you any context for this one. Um, just don't have time, so we're just going to read it as is, all right? So, 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, now meat in the uh, ancient world was generally associated with two things. One, wealth, because it just wasn't very common, okay, particularly for rural uh, peasants. And two, with idol sacrifices, because again, most people in this day and age were wealthy, and uh, you know, when you're wealthy, you have even more to love the gods for, okay? And so would, uh, you know, sacrifice food to idols, and almost all meat, even in the marketplace, butchers would spread um, you know, do kind of a little ritual, and that meat was uh, not sacrificed to idols, but was certainly blessed, uh, so to speak, by those idols, okay? So, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Okay, now, the immediate question, of course, in your mind is, okay, do we judge or do we not judge? It's very clear, though, the distinction, right? Judging in 1 Corinthians has everything to do with things that are morally wrong or morally right in accordance with God's character. The things that he's made clear are not good for you and are not good for the people around you. Paul here is talking precisely about and only about disputable matters. He says it over and over again. So we judge in the issues that are right and wrong. We judge not in the issues that are disputable matters. Now, is that some easy distinction always? No, because each culture and each society is going to have a slightly different idea of what that is. And that's why it's always important to go back to the scripture to understand these things that seem morally wrong and right, are they actually disputable matters? Or do they really reflect God's character and what he wants for us? Do we have a consistent image of God's character that makes it clear that this behavior, like drunkenness or sexual immorality, are just simply not okay? And the precedent is there. 
And again, that does not mean that there aren't still some gray areas for us. But when we use that kind of filter, it helps a lot with, you know, making that Venn diagram a whole lot less overlapping, okay? We've got the ROM, we've got the disputable, uh, yeah. So, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. And here's where you're going to get this that will run through all of these passages, that the idea behind all of these issues of disputable matters isn't about emphasizing my individual freedom or my individual piety. It's always about doing what's best for other people. Always, because that's what God does. That's the deepest part of God's character is love, and love that we see in Jesus is sacrificial to what feels good and is good for him for our sake. And there is nothing more central to a disciple's life than a willingness to sacrifice for someone else's well-being and daily, as Jesus would tell us only Jesus command, taking up our cross daily. Two most important commandments, love God with all your heart and soul and closely related, love your neighbor. And so this is going to come through in all of these passages about doing what's best for other people, not what's best for me. And it goes a lot of different ways. Whoever, uh, let me see, where am I at? For, yep, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand together before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And he's not going to be tricked by the words that we use to justify how we behaved. He sees through the heart of those issues and why we did what we did, both good and bad. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Saying, major in the majors here, not in the minors. Let the, the you know, uh, love for other people deal with these minor issues that are disputable. And let that be the, uh, the standard that we live, of, live by. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God, God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to what leads to peace and a mutual building up or edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, that's a really challenging passage, okay? Because if you think about it, and you take this at a corporate level, if anything ever offends anybody, then you should just not do any of it, right? And none of us would really be able to live uh, or accomplish really anything, particularly in this day and age where everybody has their pet peeve list of things that offends them, right? And we're like going around, slaving around for people in these disputable matters, that is not at all what Paul is talking about, okay? So let's kind of break this down a little bit and, uh, and make sense of it. The first one, which I think is obvious from both of these passages, is that we spend a lot of our time judging behaviors in the outside world and comparing ourselves to them. That is like an adult comparing themselves to a child and saying, I, I know a lot. I'm pretty smart, okay? Because that toddler... Uh, you know, is just can't compare it to me. Now, I'm certainly not trying to be mean or rude to the outside world, but in terms of knowledge of God, which is the only thing I'm talking about here, folks in the church 
ought to be as adults compared to the world as toddlers or as that little puppy over there, which is even a better example. Uh, really? Okay. In terms of our knowledge of God and his character. Now, that doesn't apply to sciences or, you know, I don't know, being better at film or all these other things that we might pretend that Christianity has somehow made us better at. It's just talking about knowledge of the holy. And so we've got to stop judging uh, our behavior based on the behavior of, of the world. That makes no sense. It is absolutely not helpful and not beneficial. But what we do is we judge those who are inside the body of Christ. And we judge based on, in these debatable matters that are of concern based upon God's character of what he would do and how he would love those people around us. Because what happens with debatable matters is they can easily become about God's character. While inherently there's no issue with you know, me drinking and being fine with drinking, if I start preaching to a church about drinking where we've got maybe two-thirds of our church has some kind of alcohol use disorder, and I'm encouraging drinking, now most of you aren't going to deal with that because you're not up here at a corporate level, that's really unwise, okay? Very, very unwise. And in, in fact, I'm putting a stumbling block in front of you so as to encourage you to do something. And for some of you who are really particularly caught up in a vice or some sin, you know that when someone even intimates around you that it might not be as bad as you think it is, you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's an authority. I think I'll probably be good with that. Yeah? You know? Uh, we just do that naturally. Someone kind of downplays what we thought was a huge sin, and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. I think I'm just going to go dive right in. That's what we're talking about. Each of us in our individual authority with each other have this power to put stumbling blocks in people's way when we approve of something that may be okay for us, but not okay for them. Maybe because we have self-control in that area. Maybe because it's just something that we were taught it wasn't offensive. There's a lot of different things that go on, and I want to talk a bit more about this uh, here now. What? That was weird. Uh, let me say two things, though, before I move on to this next passage that I think will explain, <coughs> explain this a little bit better. I just want you to think about these two ideas because I think this might help inform this. Number one, it's always easier to love and hate an idea than it is a person. Okay? It's both easier to love and hate and the idea of something than it is a person. And I have this problem all the time. When I, you know, uh, set my sights on arguments, which is somewhat regular, uh, I have a tendency to cease to see the person and simply to see that person as an idea that's kind of in my way. And then I treat them with no dignity and no humanity because I'm addressing the idea. But it's really hard to hate someone when you know um, the things that they've gone through, their struggles, their issues. Uh, what is that really wonderful priest that worked with uh, folks that had uh, cognitive disabilities? Um, come on, you guys don't know him? Yes, I mean, now one. Talks about that, you know, he, and I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he basically just says, you know, I'm pretty sure that anybody, if they saw their enemies at their worst point and through their greatest challenges, would have a really tough time hating them. But it's always easy to hate and love an idea uh, much more than a person. And that's why it, when we talk about these things, we've got to be very careful that ideas in our head don't cause us to fail to see the people that those ideas affect because we can have all ideas all day long and you can be really passionate about this cause and that cause and this freedom and the other and in the process do devastation to the people around you. Movies are about this, whole societies have been built around this and ideas seemed really great on paper and it devastated people's lives. So what this scripture is saying is be very careful of what you approve and disapprove of because people are hanging in the balance here. And I don't think Paul is really meaning people are going to be destroyed in their faith. I think he really means they're going to be destroyed in their being able to be sanctified and grow as Christians. Because these are not salvific issues. These are not, you know, you decide, um, you know, sacrifice to idols, meat, things like that, drinking. These are not salvation type issues. But you are going to destroy their progression and their uh, movement and might even, if, you know, it's full-blown, cause them to, uh, to sin. So one more other thing, too. It's also easier for us to judge someone far off than nearby. Much easier for us to judge someone far off than nearby. And a lot of this has to do with the same thing. It's the, the more far off they are, the more of an idea they are. 
So we have to be very careful. And that's why when I read a lot of these passages, guys, to me this is not a corporate thing. Paul is not advancing a corporate way of thinking about stumbling blocks. He is using the term brothers and sisters to communicate this is about individual relationships within the church. Now, ought there be some corporate level or some organizational things you live by? Sure. Like, for instance, let me give you the example of focus not having people drink. That is not focus saying no one in our ministry can drink. That is saying if you choose to be a leader, we're going to have this corporate thing and everyone signs on to it. But that would be absolutely inappropriate in my mind if it was said, okay, none of you can drink at all. That's going way too far with the stumbling block principle. But if it's an optional thing, it's great. Okay, yeah, you know, you don't have to be a leader if you don't want to. But because of the associations, we're going to not even go as far as to have any problems and cause any problems with people around us. And apparently that's still not work, so uh, maybe we uh, need something else. But I think it's much better when we look into these uh, stumbling block commands as individual relationships with each other. And learning how at the individual level to be very careful of what I approve of uh, you know, being a problem for someone else nearby. All right, 1 Corinthians 8. Let me move through this a little bit quicker. So 1 Corinthians 8, this passage is very similar to the Romans passage. A lot of parallels, but it's still slightly different enough to, uh, to be able to uh, expound on this point, I think. Okay, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge has a tendency to puff up while love builds up, meaning that love is worked for. Knowledge, you don't have to work for it. It just sort of grows and grows, and then the bubble bursts, and then you realize how stupid you are, and then you get, get real smart in an area. And one of my favorite things about this, I do this all the time, so I'm the worst, but you know, I'll get interested in something, you know, one week, and I'll be talking about how, how I've been interested in this thing, you know, like how this is kind of like a new identity thing for me. Like, I'm this, I'm this way, I'm really into this. It's like I was in it for a week. That's knowledge puffing up. It's a quick, apparently, identity marker that I have uh, that kind of came out of nowhere, all right? Um, It's not building yet. Love is much slower. It takes a long time, but it's much firmer. Um, And uh, and, and knowledge uh, has a tendency to pop. Uh, The bubble bursts. It doesn't uh, doesn't have much of substance. So those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. No time in my life did I experience this passage more so than when I was a graduate student. It's amazing the more you get up into the higher levels of academia, how much the tendency to pretend like you know a lot is there, but the feeling deep down that you don't know anything compared to the people around you. Like you are a total worthless bag of uninformative you know, information. And if you can get around enough lay people to where you can impress them, then you know, at least you get a little bit of a salve on your wounds of, uh, of inadequacy. But for the most part, uh, especially when you're around people who are at your same level, you realize what a total noob you really are. The more you learn, the more you learn that you don't really know anything. Um, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, in whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. I get an important point here, and that's that for people, certain things are associated with behaviors that aren't okay. The behavior itself is fine, but they're so associated with another type of behavior. Drinking is a wonderful example of this. Some people, when they drink liquor, only associate that liquor with all the nights they partied before they were in Christ and get, get, got drunk. It literally gets them sick just to even think about it. Well, if someone's like that and a weaker brother, and this weaker context thing is really difficult because this does not mean they're morally uh, less sound or they're uh, even necessarily a, a newer Christian. It just simply means in this area, they don't have strength, okay, to overcome some of the associations with this behavior. That's all that means. We've often understood this weaker brother thing to mean like they're like new Christians or they're like, 
just generally weak moral people. I don't think if they were weak moral people, they would generally care that much about you know, these uh, things like food sacrifice to idols and these debatable matters, okay? So I think that's a wrong interpretation of that. But there are certain associations that make things uh, really uh, t- difficult for people. So be careful, how for, uh, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Okay, pretty radical statement here. So how do we know? How do we know what those things, uh, those things are? Well, in my mind, Paul sets out three things here, and they're very, very clear. Okay, number one is it some sort of threat to someone else's freedom? This is not a gray area. I mean, this is not a black and white, moral wrong, moral right. However, it's an issue that someone else may, in in pure freedom and faith, do, that it's someone else, when they do it, is the exact opposite. It comes not from their faith, but from a guilty conscience, and it just doesn't work. So what, what are those things? You know what? We could literally list down a lot of things, okay? Here are some things that I simply think apply and here are some things I don't really think apply. Smoking, okay? Particularly pipe smoking. Um, now, if you're like a regular cigarette smoker, that's probably, I, I mean, it's not morally wrong, but you're certainly not doing anything helpful for your body and your lungs, right? I mean, you're just asking yourself by uh, eating them cancer sticks. Uh, so, but I think that applies in this, uh, this area here. Cussing, okay? Uh, the way you dress, uh, certainly. Things I don't think fall into here. For most of us, eating uh, or, or issues even associated with eating. Politics, I don't think falls into this area of debatable matter um, at all in my mind. You might disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, medication. I had someone, one of my good friends in UVH this last week, and uh, I got a call from his brother, and he spent about 30 minutes on the phone, and the hypocrisy, I mean, he was dripping with hypocrisy, but uh, his speech was, but I'll get that in a moment, was just telling me that he felt like this guy shouldn't be there, he should stop his medication entirely, and we're talking about someone who has bipolar disorder, severe uh, anxiety and, um, and depression, uh, stemming multiply from multiple regular sexual abuse when he was a kid, uh, and also assault, uh, from you know, a variety of family members that he was unfortunately passed around from person to person. And this brother proceeded to tell me that all this medication was the reason that he was not doing well, that he should just drop the medication, that he believes if he just has faith enough, uh, then, you know, God will really heal him. So hard to talk to him about this. Uh, Not the least of which is because this person has most recently decided to take up smoking marijuana. And while on the phone with me, was high as a kite. Uh, Always interesting to talk to someone who is very opposed to uh, a cognitive medication and is himself very, very okay with smoking lots of marijuana. Where do you even start, right? But this is a wonderful example of, in my mind, these, these kinds of debatable issues. But I do not think depression or anxiety medication is one of these debatable issues. I have no, I think in my mind, if you take depression or anxiety medication, how are you gonna cause someone to stumble along with you? You might offend someone who doesn't think it's right, but how are you going to cause them to stumble or sin in any significant way? I don't think so at all, unless they're going and getting their own like black market depression medication or something, which is a very extreme and I think not at all a common thing because depression medication is pretty cheap. Uh, so I think you could probably fit in a lot of things here that do apply and don't apply. And what I'm simply saying with those, not coming up with rules, but those things that do apply, we ought to be very, very careful about practicing them around people uh, and emphasizing our freedom without knowing uh, people's past and who they are. And those things that don't apply, we ought not let people call evil what is good. Okay? Whew, that's a lot of stuff. So, the final uh, uh, thing that I want to say here is that this very uh, challenging comment at the end about doing everything through faith probably makes a lot of us a little bit nervous, right? Because if we were to, to ask ourselves day to day, like, what do I do in faith? You'd probably think, okay, wait a minute, I don't think I'm a Christian here. I think maybe this is for like super spiritual people. 
But again, this doing things in faith in our current uh, uh, culture has too much of an association with activity and with special, profound kind of activity. And all I think Paul is saying here is, are you doing things that God is behind and that reflect his character and glorify him? And if I'm sitting uh, you know, somewhere enjoying alcohol uh, in moderation and around people who I know uh, equally uh, enjoy alcohol in moderation and we're not taking Instagram photos of ourselves you know, in partying, drinking kind of ways or calling people up and you know, pretending like we're drunk when we're not, I think that's really doing something in faith. I think it's completely okay. And I have no problem with that. Um, but we have to be very careful, again, uh, that our love uh, ultimately governs these things uh, that are very debatable in gray area matters. And I think that's what, ha- what it means by doing things in faith. Because remember, Paul talks there quite a bit about not letting people call what you think is good bad. And I might tell someone in a conversation, listen, this is not bad. And the fact that you think it's bad has more to do with you but I love you enough, and I want to make it clear to you that I do, I'm doing this for your sake, okay? And I don't ever want to get, you know, have a problem with that. It's like what I told you about our, uh, you know, our shop. Whenever there's a, a beer can or a beer uh, cap anywhere near our shop, I don't go and throw it into the trash cans in our shop. I go and throw it into a far-off trash can that I know my ex-alcoholic 10 years, 12 years sober now partner is not going to see and not going to find, I don't talk about drinking around them. I have never touched any alcohol around him. It is not a conversation. And for those of you who think, well, that's probably not that big of a deal. He's been sober for 12 years. No, it is a real big deal to him. Not to mention the fact that multiple of his friends say, oh, you know, 12 years, you can do it. It's fine. Just drink a beer with me. It's almost like a contest for them. How sick and depraved is that? You know, ever put a stumbling block in his way? Uh, to be able to do those things. And so we've got to really think and act and, and love there. Any questions? Because that's it. It could be anything and everything that we've talked about. I wanted to just open it up and make sure that if you had any questions or specific comments, uh, that you could, uh, you could make those. Yeah, first, mom. Right, and I, and I want to say something, and I think the point is good that you know, people have these associations with drinking that are more secondary. To, it's not fair to call them secondary because they have primary effects, but... It's not that I'm going to go out and drink, but drinking is associated uh, with an alcoholic father, things like that. And I think that's, you've got to be very careful about that. And I think that does um, kind of loosely fall into the stumbling block thing. But I want to make it really clear that that's really not what Paul was talking about. Paul is talking about stuff that, that will eventually cause someone to walk into some kind of sinful uh, behavior and I think there are plenty of people who are moral observers and think this is not good. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But that's not the, the context that Paul's talking about. Because I think this, this corporately has been used too often to say, well, because we have a few people in our church that are kind of higher up and they don't like alcohol, we're just not going to drink at all. Uh, did I tell you about the story about heaven and the lady drinking? Okay. I have a um, family member. Uh, not close, not close, far off, okay? So, and um, literally we were at a table one day talking, this is Chewy as I remember, and she was really concerned about how it says in Revelation that we'll drink wine, and she was like, I don't know what I'm going to say to Jesus when Jesus tells me I got to drink wine because I am a teetotaler, okay? Teetotaler, 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 I can never say that word, never in my entire life. I am an abstinence-only drinking person, Okay? And I just don't know how I'm going to deal with this. Like, I'm just going to have to tell him, I don't think I can do this. And I'm like, are we seriously having this conversation? You're going to tell Jesus in heaven that you're not going to drink wine because you've decided that you know more about the effects of wine than he does? What is happening? So, and, and that's not at all what you were saying, mom. And I, I, I appreciate that the fact that the association there is, that's just a more of loving people and really taking care of them. And it's not so much you've stopped the behavior as much you just choose not to drink around people who have those associations. Um, but, you know, there's also this extreme version of it that, you know, uh, the whole church is going to have to do what I say because I'm, you know, have this real strict moral legalism in this uh, area. I mean, that just, I don't even, oh goodness. All right, uh, Ben and, and Andrew. Well, I think a lot of us aren't worried about the public thing uh, because they're not, you're not me right? I'm up here doing all kinds of crazy stuff. 
Most of us, it's at the one-on-one level. And even most of my life, it's at the one-on-one level. I'm dealing with people one-on-one. I'm interacting with them. And I have a foul mouth sometimes. And so, you know, if I'm saying shit, which I said on radio, dang it, or whatever this thing is, it's not a radio, (laughs) and someone has a real problem with me using that word, it's helpful to know that, okay? I had all these arguments about whether or not I should cuss in my classes, and I did, and probably too much, I don't know, in retrospect, but I also wanted to make people really comfortable, and I always had people talk to me about it, and I always did it funnily, never angrily, because cussing can be an, an expression of anger, um, but it's, it has to have conversation. We've got to be both okay with discussing those debatable issues in a way that, like, you know, listen, man, when I hear you cuss, it makes me think I'm around, like, my coworkers who just say the dirtiest and meanest things. And, I mean, sometimes it's funny for us, I think, Christians to use that same language, and then, you know, it, it, to my mind, it's a parody of it. It's parodying just the grossness that's in our world, and I don't have a problem with that. It's like any parody you would watch, it's a satire. And it's obviously funny, and it's obviously stupid, and you're making stupid some of the actual things that people say uh, in, in our culture. And, uh, and maybe that's just my sense of humor, so, uh, which is sick, I guess. Uh, so I just think you have to have conversations about that. You've got to know people well enough and, and be close enough to them to be able to understand that. And, you know, I mean, things get around in a family, and I think that's important for them to get around. You know, if we know that in Denton we've got some issues with alcohol because, you know, we're a college town and we're an alcohol town, some of that should just be really, you should just be smarter than if you're going to be at a church that's a bunch of older people and that the issue's not going to be there. Um, I just don't think these corporate, I think a lot of us look at this stumbling block stuff as corporate. Guys, this is just about doing what's best for the people around us. And that's hard. We do not want to, and we're not trained in the U.S. at all to give up our rights. It's a strange thing because we have a sense of love and family, but we maximize our rights as if maximizing our rights means that we're actually looking out for other people's rights. When it's in that context, it's great. But when it really just means maximize my own rights, it's just a, 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 a facade of uh, you know, selfish ambition and selfishness. So I think a lot of it just to come back to one-on-one, man. I mean, I gave you some list. Music is another one. I mean, I love rap music. I like rap music and I like classic rock. At its best, it's political and has some great things to say. And at its worst, it's just super hedonistic, man. I mean, super, super hedonistic. But, I mean, I'm not about to trade up to, like, listen to 94.9 or 89.7. I mean, that stuff's just total trash to me. And if you like it, great. I mean, you love it. That's good. Let, don't let me call evil what is good. I don't think it's evil. I just think it's terrible music um, in every way, shape, and form. Um, I often wonder what would be worse, sitting in a a padded room with country music on or with Christian music on. And I still to this day cannot decide which one. I really, it's tough, so tough in my mind. I just imagine myself being there and listening to either one of those and I, gosh, I can't, I can't decide. It's a perfect, you know, which would you rather for me? Uh, Andrew, it's the 10th time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really don't want to go into that. And that's simply because it's a church leadership happens once every two or three years kind of thing. I think it's made up, it's a decision by the leaders. And I think it comes down to, I gave you two examples that you can go and research. The Village two years ago made a bad choice and they had to reverse it. Uh, Watermark four years ago made a good choice and they got a lot of uh, flack for it in newspapers. And if you just want to go look at both of those, they both had to do with marital unfaithfulness. Excuse me. <clears throat> And they had to disfellowship uh, both of the members. It was church discipline. And, uh, and so, you know, without going too deep into it, I, this is just not one of those issues that's really pertinent to all of us because it's so rare that it happens. And that's four churches in 20 years that, you know, it's happened four or five times. I can't even remember. And it was justified. And, you know, and that was a corporate level disassociation. When you're talking about a, a personal level disassociation, I'm just not going to spend time with Christians who are, uh, you know, greedy, uh, consistently sexually immoral. Uh, and a lot of that you just can see, it's obvious. I mean, they're sitting here on one hand, yeah, I'm a Christian, I do this and that. And the other, it's like, yeah, that every weekend, you know, who do I sleep with? Or, um, you know, getting drunk. It's just, it's obvious to me. Like, dude, how, if I'm a, even remotely close to this person, they're not a stranger and therefore outside the community, I'm gonna be like, how can you possibly call yourself a Christian when you, you get, and they're going to usually get upset, and that's the disassociation, is they're, they're pretty much done with you in public. <laughs> Most people who really want help aren't, uh, you know, uh, going to be following you around after 10 times of you telling them, you can't live like this. This is not going to work. 
it's the rare person who needs to be corporately disfellowshipped. Uh, and in all honesty, those corporate disfellowships uh, are very effective. About half of the time that I've seen in our church, those people end up back. And it was the thing they needed to get serious about getting over the thing that they wouldn't get over. Uh, it was, it was, I mean, it's very humbling to come back to a church where everyone was like, threw your sin out in the middle of it and said, don't associate with this person because here's how they're living. And you come back and you're like, oh, I'm serious now. But now he's accountable to everybody. And that's just such a rare situation. I mean, it's such a rare situation. Uh, even though I have four or five of you that I plan this fellowshipping next week. Um, <laughs> so, we're not even meeting next week, okay? That was a test. <laughs> yes, sir. No, I, see, I don't think eating, I don't think eating applies to this. I really don't. Um, I don't think eating disorders and, and cognitive illnesses and those things apply in this, this situation. It's too tricky. Uh, and when you're dealing with, you know, stuff that's primarily genetic, um, again, that just doesn't, you know, work. Now, I mean, if you've got someone who's on a diet and they're really trying to lose weight, and I mean, you're going crazy with like McDonald's and inviting them over, I mean, that's just strange, right? I mean, are you, I mean, it, it's just, that's weird, that's just weird stuff, you know? I mean, there's been plenty of people in our community who come alongside someone who's on a diet or who has problems and are really going to help them out, and that's fine. But I think eating is, is not, in, I, don't, I don't think eating would have ever been considered something in Paul's thinking here. It was the food sacrifice to idols that were a big deal because people were associating this food with idol worship and basically that they were all these idols that they ought to be appeasing, and it's very clear that God is the only God, and, uh, and is the only one that we can compare, you know, uh, character and our standards back to. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think usually it's friend groups. I mean, if everybody knew about everyone else's issue, we'd be in, it'd be kind of weird and strange. Um, so I think that just comes back to kind of small groups and, and being knowledgeable about the groups that you're in. And that's why friendship groups that are really based in Christian fellowship are so much more powerful than these buddy friendships, because buddy friendships aren't really willing to sacrifice for their friends. They're just in it for how fun and how great it is to them. And so you get into a buddy friendship, and I've seen this a lot in dating and focus. You know, you get someone who's had a really, really bad past with dating. Uh, and by the way, dating, I think, is on this list of does apply. And they've got a friend group that just doesn't care about how much junk that girl's, you know, or guy has in her past and just dates just kind of frivolously and without really uh, setting an example. And in, in regard to dating, I'm, I'm particularly talking about the issues of sexual immorality and how far they go and because that question is ultimately debatable in some ways. Um, some people are make, fine making out before they're you know, married, some people aren't, uh, whatever. So, uh, so that can be a real stomach block in that kind of group setting. I've seen that a lot in focus ministry uh, stuff, so yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, it's a joke, and he's making fun of all y'all for all your questions, so as if he doesn't have crazy questions sometimes and random things to say, you know? All right, we're going to, uh, speaking of eating, uh, you know, we're going to uh, take communion, and then uh, uh, because, you know, I like to get out of here on time, and I do think that that uh, can be very helpful for putting a schedule and meeting with people and more interacting, I really would like you guys not to socialize too much during communion, um, to just come on back. Why don't we even do something so strange and weird and be somewhat penitent and quiet during communion? Is it even possible for us? I mean, we don't do that around here very often. We do think of it as a celebration. But maybe this is a time for us to just sit and think about, you know, so much of what Paul appeals to in these uh, letters is recognizing that Christ is our model here and that Christ was willing to sacrifice whatever it was for our well-being, down to touching the leper when he didn't need to, he could have healed him from afar, uh, and risking disease or, or people seeing him as unclean. And I think that's a lot we have to celebrate, that we serve a God who does what's in our best interest in the most small ways up to the big ways. It's not just, oh, I did this big thing for you, so, you know, I'm good to go. It's in his life he lived this out, whether that was not eating food, uh, just so he could talk to the Samaritan woman, uh, whatever it is, it's, uh, you know, that's the God that we serve. And so we get, we, we're privileged to be able to live like that and model that uh, for each other. So maybe just take an opportunity during communion to just kind of think through. Let, let the message sort of sink in a little bit. Maybe if you get you know, enough time, you can kind of think through what are some things that uh, I've been a little bit reckless in with my um, you know, freedoms. And maybe on the other side, what are some things I've been super strict about and maybe uh, you know, have kind of been applying some sort of legalistic rule to the people around me. All right? So let's do that and let's come right back. Guys, can you accomplish that? Can you, can you do it? If even one person gets loud, then everybody gets loud. So I'm going to say a prayer. Is that okay, ladies? Or, okay.
Yeah. <laughs> God, thank you for your grace and mercy for us. Thank you for um, calling us from the depths of hell and in the worst situations, some of us, and letting us work in tandem with you in a community where we get to love each other and we get to um, you know, imitate you and your character. Uh, give us strength. Uh, that's what we need. We need strength to be able to overcome our selfish um, desires and um, our constant, constant obsession with our freedoms. Let us live in a way that really does lift other people up uh, into your arms and into uh, the, the power that your spirit gives to make us new. We take this communion in full realization that that is who you are in your deepest and inner core. A God who loves us and would sacrifice and has sacrificed anything for our well-being. And that that message is so powerful. Help us to live like that in even a small way in every day. So as to bless the people in our community and, and outside of it. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.